glad that you guys are here. Hi, Nicole. Um, if you guys want to grab your seats, if you want, you can find our lyric sheets online at civalhambra.com. Or if you're in person, you can go ahead and find them over there at the guest resource table. Uh, we're glad you guys are here. Join us in person or once again, if you are online, you should be able to find a little button somewhere that talks about the Sunday morning resource for notes. And if you're the person looking it up, uh, the URL is civalhambra.com. Yeah, would you stand with us and join us?
Mark Klepsig, and I want to welcome you here today. Uh, I serve on the board of directors for the church, and whether you're here with us in person um, or online, we're glad that you've joined us. Uh, as been mentioned before, you can find the um, song lyrics or listening guide or connection card at civalhambra.com slash Sunday. And if you're here, uh, young at heart, or you have kids that would like to Color with crayons, we have the crayons and uh, coloring pages and paper copies of those other things here uh, at the resource table. Um, if you're our guest this morning, we do welcome you, um, whether online or in person. If you're in person, we have a gift for you uh, at the resource table where you got your name tags. It's a book that's called um, How Good is Good Enough, and so we urge you to take one of those on your way out. We do have uh, three upcoming events um, for a while. We've been kind of COVID constrained, but uh, starting to realize that this is going to be around for even longer. So um, we have a membership meeting on Sunday, February 28th at 1030 uh, here in the courtyard at the Alhambra. And we'll have an option to Zoom in as well. Uh, we'll be sending that link to, for Zoom to the uh, membership. And what that meeting will be about is just kind of an update uh, on the, the church calendar, the upcoming speaker calendar, um, and some other uh, updates of what's going on in the church and what we've been planning and how we're doing uh, financially and otherwise. So really uh, encourage you, uh, if, uh, the members, to, to take part in that. Uh, today, uh, also at 1030 in the um, courtyard here, we have um, a baptism overview so if you have been curious about baptism, thinking that might be a step that you want to take, um, we'll be explaining just what does the Bible say about that? What does that look like? How is that going to work? Um, and you can meet um, John or Stacy, depending if you are uh, here uh, as an adult or um, a child that's looking to get baptized, over um, by the, the tables with the umbrellas over to my left here. Um, and again, there will be one separate one for um, adults and one for children. And that's in preparation for the baptism that we're having on March 7th, and in a common theme at 10.30 here in the courtyard. Um, we will invite everybody here just to uh, take part and celebrate those that are getting baptized and taking that step. Next, I do have the privilege uh, of announcing our guest speaker today. So Dr. John Taylor is the director of a PhD program. He teaches New Testament um, at Gateway Seminary, and he's joined here by his wife, Heidi. Um, he served as a missionary to university students in an international setting, and so that's exciting as well. Um, he's graciously agreed to, to serve us today and bring the message um, on his perspective on 1 Corinthians, uh, perspective that he's gained from God's words, and I really appreciate that. Uh, kind of came on short notice, so definitely very appreciative. Uh, once again, we're glad that you're, you're here with us today. So let's continue to worship before he comes up and gives us the message. Thank you, Mark. Let's stand and uh, let's sing this next song. Death was arrested.
my sorrow and dead in my sin Lost without hope, no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested and my life began Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains My orphan heart was given a name My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance When death was arrested and my life began Oh, your grace so Washes over me. You have made me new. Now life begins with you. It's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made us new. Now life begins with you. I'm a prisoner no My shame was a ransom He faithfully He canceled my debt And he's called me his friend When death was arrested My life Rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose without freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. Oh, your grace so
and let's welcome up Dr. John Taylor. Thank you. All right. Good morning, everybody. Lovely to, see, lovely to be here with you, and thank you for the welcome. Uh, what a pleasure to be worshiping God uh, together with his holy people and from all over the world. And, and uh, even though we're spread out here, uh, the Lord is with us. Amen. Amen. And uh, we are so grateful to God for his care and compassion for us and uh, giving us a nice, a lovely fine day uh, to be out here. So I'm just going to, before I do anything else, I'm just going to say a word of prayer. Our dear Lord, I am so grateful to you for all your goodness, your wisdom, your justice, your mercy, and your compassion. You're a God whose character we can trust and whose wisdom is infinite. And Father, in Jesus' name this morning, grant us your wisdom through your word. Let the power of God be present to heal, to teach, to transform. And Lord, in Jesus' name, speak to our hearts and minds. Make us more like you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Uh, <clears throat> You might notice uh, my accent's not quite Californian yet, so I'm, 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 a from, I'm from Australia, and, uh, and then had a bit of a journey in my life. We were, I was a missionary from Australia to England, and spent many years in England working in, in uh, missions, urban missions, and uh, other traveling ministry, all kinds of things. It's where I met my wife Heidi, but well, she's a Southern California girl, and, uh, and then for the last, I don't know, uh, decade and a half or so, I've been teaching New Testament in theological seminaries in the last few years at Gateway Seminary in Ontario, just up the road. So uh, that's us. Uh, we have uh, four children and uh, uh, f four grandchildren. So, uh, and another one on the way, another grandchild, not child. I think. So uh, that's us, and we live in Orange County, but, uh, and I do know uh, Rick Durst, and, and so he asked me to fill in for him this morning, so I'm grateful for that. And he is a man of God, a, a good friend of mine, and uh, you're blessed to have him ministering in this church. So we're going to open up the scriptures. And uh, if you have a Bible or a, scripture, a Bible on a phone or something, uh, if you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 18 to 23. I think in the notes it said 18 to 25. That was my typo. So anyway, let's just read this out. Let no one deceive himself. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 18 to 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, 
He seizes the wives in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are empty. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So the title for this message today is Cool or Fool? Which are we? Cool or Fool? So, and uh, the, the, oh, behind what we're talking about, behind that topic is this topic. Wisdom in an age of celebrity. Wisdom in an age of celebrity. We're going to be thinking about our own culture and the culture here in Southern California and uh, how we can live as wise people in a celebrity-focused culture. And we're going to be particularly pointing to, hopefully, to what the scripture points to is that wise living in, our, in this culture and in any culture takes humility, takes humility. So, as I said, I'm from Australia. One of Australia's most recent exports is a well-known word. So, uh, and you all know this word, that's the word selfie. And uh, selfie is, you know, went around the world like wildfire, you know, and where selfie is where you take a picture of yourself with your cell phone and, uh, and something, usually something in the background. And uh, I'm not sure whether I'm really proud of that export, but that word was invented in Australia. We tend to either shorten things uh, or make them longer by adding an E or an O or something on the end of it. It's just kind of Australian slang, you know, so... Uh, a Christmas present is a Chrissy Prezi, that sort of thing. So a, a self-taken photo is a selfie. It just makes sense to do that in Australia. But uh, that's kind of a, been a, a trend, of course, for a few years now. Just near where we live down in Orange County, there's a cliff that we sometimes uh, walk along the top of the cliff there and down to the beach. But uh, there was a guy not so long ago, uh, we saw him being picked up at the bottom of the cliff by the ambulance. He'd fallen off the, off the side of this cliff trying to take a picture of a selfie while he's w on the side of a cliff. And uh, uh, yeah, so that was, he ended up in a bit of a mess on the ground below, but he was alive, but injured. And, uh, and so that's, that's the sort of extent to which we go to publicize ourselves in the culture that we live in. This has become a culture of relentless self-promotion where we want to be known and we've got the channels to do it, social media and all the rest of it. And look, there's something I think innately right about the desire to be known to the desire to be known, the desire to have someone know me, to have that sense of human connection. And yet so easily that desire to be known bleeds over or moves over into the desire to impress, the desire to impress and to make not just a positive impression, but to receive you know, the, the uh, adulation, if you like, the admiration to make a good impression, to become, if you like, a mini-celebrity. And that's the culture we live in. 
And if that culture is certainly all over the world, but if anywhere where that kind of celebrity focused, self-promoting culture is strongest, it has to be Southern California, right? That's where we live that life and where so many uh, live in that way. And we feel the pull of that culture to be self-promoting, self-seeking, selfie-taking people who want to make an impression, who want to be known, and want to have an image that's out there in the world. That's how we get ahead. Now, I'm going to take us 2,000 years back to the culture of Corinth in the first century. And of course, there are radical differences in 2,000 years of culture and geography and, a diff you know, and a language and everything's different. But Corinth is a city in the southern part of Greece and uh, it's a major city in the area and uh, it, is, uh, the Ro it is a center of Roman and Greek culture. It's one of those cities, a Greek city that the Romans had taken over uh, they had actually destroyed it in a battle about 140 BC and they'd built it again uh, as a Roman colony in, about f in the 40s BC. And uh, by the time that Paul is writing this letter, you know, we're sort of talking now in the, uh, in the 50s uh, AD, so sort of 100 years after the Romans had established this as a colony in the, in the land of Greece. Uh, here is Paul writing to them, but he's writing in Greek uh, but it's a, a, a city with a strong Roman culture as well as a Greek culture. The Romans built these colonies to be little Romes in whatever country they were taking over. They'd, build, they'd make sure a few cities there were populated by Romans or Romans, old Roman soldiers or loyalists, people that they were giving favors to. That's the city. And this Corinth... Uh, was on this little neck of land between the mainland of Greece and this peninsula called the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And Corinth sits right there. It's a kind of a trading center. It's got sea to the east and the west, land to the north and south, and it's, it's just kind of holds a great position for trade. But it also has, uh, right just, just north of the city, on this little piece of land called an, which we call an isthmus. Can you say that six times quickly? Isthmus, okay, don't even try it, especially with a mask on. And there's a, there, was a, there was an athletic games that took place every two years called the Isthmian Games, every two years. And that games was athletics, wrestling, running, discus throwing, spear throwing, uh, all those kind of things. But in those ancient days, the games were more than just athletics. They'd have musical competitions. Uh, they'd have drama, drama competitions, who would have the best play. And they would also have public speaking competitions. And uh, the Corinthians loved their public speakers, their rhetoricians. This was a big deal. In fact, they had statues in Corinth to some of their favorite jock speakers, the people who'd come through, the celebrity speakers who'd come through town and wow the crowd. That's how, they, that's how they loved that kind of entertainment. And people would be trained in their education in rhetoric. And uh, in this first century world then, we've got this phenomenon, what, we, what they called sophists, people who were educated, 
trained in speaking, trained to entertain, to amuse, to instruct the crowd, trained uh, to, be, uh, to be able to speak on anything and hold any position and persuade you. There's a, a, c- a contemporary description of this, uh, of this kind of atmosphere of this city by a man called Dio. He says this, That was a time, too, when one could hear crowds of wretched sophists around Poseidon's temple. These are these people who are looking for, you know, to impress the crowd with how dynamic they are in speaking and in philosophy. They were around the temple, shouting and reviling one another and their disciples, as they were called, fighting with one another, many writers reading aloud their stupid works, many poets reciting their poems while others poems while others applauded them, many jugglers showing their tricks, many fortune tellers interpreting fortunes, lawyers innumerable perverting judgment, and peddlers, not a few, peddling whatever they happened to have. That's the environment. That's Corinth in the first century. It's a cultural chaos, and it is every, every person for him or herself, right? Everyone's out to, to make, a, make a drachma, and everyone's out to impress. This same writer describes the followers of these sophists as so-called disciples, he says, and they were full of rivalry, even getting violent in defense of the reputation of whichever teacher they followed. So that being the disciple of a sophist instilled such loyalty and spirit of rivalry that one group often took up clubs against another. You see, this form of discipleship following whatever speaker or teacher came through town meant great personal glory for sophists who like, who one writer, ancient writer said, like gorgeous peacocks are lifted aloft on the wings of their fame and their disciples. That's the world of Corinth in the first century. This was a body-focused culture, by the way. They put up statues all over the place, and the gods that they put up in statues are perfect in body, beautifully represented, It was a a culture that wanted to impress with mind, with word, with body. That's how you got ahead, by being more impressive than the next person. And Paul is speaking to a church in this context that has to live in this context. And what's happened in in, in, in Corinth and in the Corinthian church is that they have been impressed by certain leaders along the way. So Paul, the apostle, was the one who started the church in Corinth. A little while later, there's a a man called Apollos who who rocks into town, and Apollos carries on the work, encourages the church, and so on. Peter, it looks like Peter also, or Cephas, his his other name, he turns up at, at some point in Corinth, And what we have then is this church that started to split or to be divided over loyalty to to which of their former leaders or which outside speaker or theologian they are loyal to. So according to chapter 1, some people are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, right? And so... And particularly, there were groups of sort of a Paul, people who followed Paul and people who followed Apollos. Situation with this is, is that Paul is, 
he started the church and, and Apollos comes along later, Paul is very concerned that this is not the way to do church. We don't do it this way. We don't have, we don't follow personal favorites and loyalties over and against God's church. This is the background of this letter and what's happening in our passage. So we come back to our passage then. Paul has been, has been talking about this for about three, cha three chapters so far, trying to get them to be unified. And he's talking about his ministry and Apollos' ministry. He said, look, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. And he's basically saying, we're just both servants. We're both there doing, we both came through town doing what God wanted us to do. It's God's church. It's God's growth. And it's Jesus Christ is the foundation. And then right before our passage, he, he says, look, don't you know that you, that is you, you plural, you believers, you are the temple of God. And God's spirit dwells among you. And if anyone defiles or destroys God's temple, God is going to defile or destroy him for God's temple is holy. And that temple is what you are. Don't mess with God's temple. By, me, by which he means the church. Don't mess it around. Because it's holy. Because God has chosen it and he's chosen to live in it. And it now belongs to him. And that's where our passage picks up, where Paul says in this first part of our passage, humble yourselves. This is so countercultural, right? A culture which wants them to boast, a culture which wants them to impress others, to promote themselves, a culture which wants them to be somebody to impress others, to make your mark in the world. He's calling them to a totally countercultural lifestyle. He says, let, let, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In other words, don't deceive yourself as to your wisdom and your cleverness. Don't deceive yourself as to your wisdom and your cleverness. If you think that you're wise, well, better to become a fool. This first part of our passage is about a wrong understanding of yourself. And Paul is calling them to see themselves, to see ourselves for who we are. And that's a hard thing, let's be honest about it. It's really hard to know ourselves, let alone to know others. But he's calling us for a right to a right view of ourselves, meaning don't imagine you're wise when you're adopting the, kind, the worldly and cultural approaches to influence, to leadership, and to life that is in the city around them. Don't imagine that's a wise thing. That's not wise, but foolish. In, in chapter 8 and verse 2, he says, if anyone imagines or thinks that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. In our passage, if you think that you're wise in this age, become a fool that he may become 
that you may become wise for the wisdom of this world is foolishness or folly with God. So, right back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, there's this contrast made between the, the ways of the Greek world that Paul was ministering in and the gospel. He says in verse 18 of chapter 1, For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will thwart. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This is the contrast. What's wise in the world's eyes is foolishness to God. What's foolish in the world is, is the wisdom of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very cross itself looks foolish to the, to the culture of Corinth and even to our culture. It's the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom of God. So humble yourself. Paul says in verse 18 here, let him humble, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In other words, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to prepare to become a fool in the eyes of the culture around you. That's the price you're going to have to pay to look foolish in the eyes of the world around you. I don't know if you've ever had any, much contact with the media. Some, maybe some of you working in the media. But uh, I've, over my years of ministry, every, you know, you know, on a few occasions, I've been quoted in a newspaper or, or something like that. And uh, I can tell you, it's invariably got it wrong. Uh, in other words, it's never, ever been accurate. Whatever has come out in the media about has always been misquoted or something, or just misinterpreted. So one time, in, when we were doing some ministry in England, we, we were doing this uh, street kind of ministry to people and we'd, we'd got our guitars out there and our street theater and our, and our preaching and everything trying to draw a crowd and tell them about Jesus and the local newspaper uh, put up a put up a, the, the, a picture of us and put it in the uh, put it in the newspaper and they said the heading was they called us Bible buskers Bible buskers go on parade it was a cringeworthy and embarrassing headline now that's that's the price you pay. For me, they thought it they thought it was absolutely foolish. They thought we were just kind of busking, and uh, not that I have anything against busking, but that's not what we were doing. And we weren't out there to get; we were out there to give. And uh, and so, don't imagine that you can follow Christ fully and be counted cool in this world you'll uh, you're going to be counted a fool not cool it's going to happen so for all of you who already know that you're not cool you're good to go amen <laughs> if you already know that you're not cool that's you're on the right track 
prepare to become a fool in the world's eyes by adopting biblical standards and values, then you really will become wise. But why should we do this? And that's what Paul says. Look at verse 19 of our passage. It's got the word in, the first word here is for. It tells you why we should adopt this different set of values in life. Because, he says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. What the world counts as clever and wise is utter folly in God's eyes. And this is so hard to wrap our eyes, wrap our minds around when uh, we are so influenced by the media culture in which we live, whether it's online or however we're, we're consuming our culture. But the danger is that in consuming our culture, we are ourselves being consumed. And, and so we have to recognize this, that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, and God knows. Amen? And then Paul's going to quote two passages from the Old Testament. The first is from Job. And uh, where he says he captures or grasps, grasps the wise in their own wisdom or their, in their cleverness. He catches the wise in their cleverness or their craftiness. And this is taken from Job chapter 5. It's actually one of Job's comforters making this speech, and some parts of it are good, and some parts of it aren't so good. This is the good part. He says, and this is what he says, As for me, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before God, who, God who does great and, and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth. He sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who are mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. He grasps the wise by their own cleverness and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. That's what comes from Job. And the word here that where he says he captures, it's, it's the idea of some grasping something. God's going to get a hold of those who uh, think, think they're clever but really foolish. What the point here is this. Why should we change? Why should we be prepared to become fools in this world's eyes and be wise in God's eyes? Why should we go that route? And the first reason is this. God judges the wisdom of the world, right? That's the reason. God is going to grasp the clever. He's going to get a hold of them. God is judging the wisdom and the wise of this world. And the second reason is this. The Lord knows the reality of our arrogance when we're following the world's wisdom and influences. He knows that that path is really empty. That's what we see in verse 20, where he says, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of, of the wise, that they are empty or futile. So, why should we 
humble ourselves because number one, the Lord judges the wisdom of this world and the wise of this world. And number two, because the Lord knows that that kind of life and that wisdom is utterly vacuous and empty. There's nothing to it. This comes, this quote comes from, and this second scripture that Paul quotes comes from Psalm 94. Where it says, the Lord knows the thoughts of people, of man, that they are a mere breath, emptiness. In the Hebrew, in the, in the Old Testament, uh, in, in Psalm 94 here, verse 11 in the Hebrew, it says that these thoughts of, of man are Hevel, hevel, which is meaning vapor, breath, something that's just there and gone. Like you breathe a breath and it just disappears, it dissipates. Nothing to it. And the Greek word that's used to translate this, and Paul uses it here in, in 1 Corinthians, got to do with something that's empty, futile, meaningless, nothing to it. That which seems so substantial to us and so impressive is utterly empty. And that's, this psalm is, is all about it, Psalm 94. It's actually calling on God to judge the proud of the earth because they are arrogant against God's people. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the suppression of the knowledge of God in an arrogant world. It says in Romans 1, 21 to 23, though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give a thanks to him, but they became futile, empty, same word here, in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, human arrogance leads to idolatry and false worship. Now, when I was a young missionary, I went off to my mission training school in, uh, in Australia, and, uh, and so we were going to gather for, uh, to learn how to pray for the nations of the world. We're going to learn world intercession. How do we pray for the nations? And so what we were supposed to, we say, let's all, and this was a, in my class, we had about 35 students in this intake in this class, and there was staff there and teachers, about 70 people in this meeting. And they said, we're going to go through preparing our hearts to pray for the nations. And one of the ways you prepare your heart is to ask God to show you if there's anything in your life that's unpleasing to him, just any sin or anything, and make sure that you confess it to him and repent. And so we were going through this kind of spiritual preparation for prayer for the nations. And uh, the Spirit of God fell upon us as a group, as a, as a school. And instead of, you know, this being a two-minute sort of thing that we just moved on to the next step in our program, it became two weeks of, if you like, a kind of mini-revival of repentance, of public confession, of dealing with our hearts for hours and hours and hours a day because we had a lot of stuff to get cleared up. <laughs> And at one point, the Lord just 
convicted me so highly about my own pride. I had, I was only being a Christian for a couple of years, but I had, I was converted from atheism while I was in college and uh, God had really changed my life. And, and I got into quick into Christian groups in college and became, in, was in leadership and, and, and I thought I was something, you know. And, uh, and so I thought I'm going to go to this school and they'll probably make me a leader. I didn't know how it worked, honestly. I had no idea, but I was so arrogant. And the Lord spoke to me and, and, told, and showed me my spiritual pride. And he said to me, I want you to go and lie, I want you to go and stand up in the middle of this group and I want you to humble yourself before them. I want you to lie on the floor, is what he told me, and, and ask their forgiveness for your spiritual pride and because it, it's horrible, you know. And so that's what I had to do. And I can tell you that was really hard. And uh, I thought, are they going to think I'm being proud in my humility or something? You know, but I, you have all the reasonings in the world why you shouldn't humble yourself. But I did it. And afterwards, uh, one of the leaders came up to me and said, look, I understand why you did that. He said, I had to do that before an international gathering of 500 leaders. The Lord told me to do it a few years ago. So I wasn't the only one. But listen, uh, we have to be... If, if, if pride is ruling our lives, we have to be radical in the way that we deal with it. We cannot let it continue because that's the ruling, one of the spirits of our culture. So, humble yourselves for two reasons. Number one, the Lord is judging the wisdom of the world. Number two, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wisdom of, the wisdom of this world are empty and futile and nothing. And then verse 21 and 22, Paul goes on to the next step. Don't boast, he says. Let no one boast in people or in men. And this is another command in this passage. And if the first half of our passage is to think properly about ourselves, the second half is about thinking properly about other people. Don't boast in people. This is where the Corinthian church had taken on, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I've got my favorite don't boast in people, especially leaders and influencers, and especially in the church. According to, to 1 Corinthians, it's very clear what the Corinthians wanted in a leader. They would, wanted someone like their favorite sophist. They wanted someone who was eloquent, powerful in communication, dynamic, charismatic. That's what they wanted in a leader. And Paul told them in chapter 2, one, verses 1 to 5, that when I came to preaching the gospel, I decided deliberately not to come with fancy rhetoric and, the, and, and wisdom, but to, to, to know only this, Christ and him crucified. It was simple. It was foolish in the world's eyes. It wasn't impressive. It started the church. It was the gospel. And he made a deliberate counterculture decision that he's not going to go the, the way of the world that Corinth was in. He was not going to present the gospel in their favorite cultural mode. That's so incredible. Now, he says in 2 Corinthians, look, he's a, anyway, he's a bit of a beginner in rhetoric. He wasn't highly trained in this. And... Uh, 
he says, and also in Second Corinthians, I, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm a beginning in rhetoric, rhetoric, but I'm not so in knowledge. And also in Second Corinthians, they complain about him. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is despicable. Paul wasn't a great speaker, and he wasn't very impressive physically. But Apollos, now, when he came through town, there's the man, right? He is eloquent, according to the book of Acts. He is able to instruct people. He can wow the crowd. And look, that's not Apollos' fault. He's not trying to be like that. He just is. And that God used him in that way. But you can see how someone would say, well, Paul's a founder. He's our man. He baptized me. Others would say, no, Apollos, he's my man. And they're now fighting over leaders, neither of whom are in the church anymore. Who go, they're all moved out. They're, they're at a distance. And they're now fighting over them. Don't boast in people, especially leaders and influencers, especially in the church. They're comparing one to another. And you see, in Corinth, the local celebrities were in fact dependent on and living on the praise and adulation of their followers. That's how they made money. If you were a sophist, you came into town and you advertised a lecture and you uh, got, got a crowd and uh, you, you gave them a good speech and then you took requests. They could say, I'll speak on anything. Give me 10 minutes and I'll do it. And that's what they do when it was kind of public entertainment. And then people would say, oh, that man's a learned person. I'll, get, I'll send my, uh, he can start a school. He can start a little training school here and uh, an education and I'll send my son to him. I'll pay money for him. And that's, where, that's how they did it. And, uh, and so they were dependent on the, on the adoration and the adulation of their followers. And this is what happens in a, in a celebrity ethic. The celebrities are become idols and they become dependent on the adulation of their followers. And the followers actually become dependent on that self-celebrity for their own sense of identity. We live in a culture of, self, of boasting and self-promotion, of, of cultural tribalism, because we're searching for identity. And we find it in our cultural niche, and ultimately in our own of, sense of righteousness of self, or self-righteousness. Don't boast in others. And Paul tells us again, why? Because, he says... All things are yours, verse 20 to 22. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, world, whether life, whether death, whether things present, whether things to come. All things are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. What's all this about? All things are already yours in Christ. What does this mean? The church already has everything it needs, and the leaders that God sends to serve the church are there to serve the church, not to own the church. If you're saying, as the Corinthian church is, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, you're, you're giving them a place in your life that's too much, that gives them too much power and influence, and that's foolish. And so what happens, that's in, in, in 1 Corinthians 1.12, I am Paul, I am Apollos. In this passage, 3.22, Paul puts it the other way around. No, Paul and Apollos are of you. <laughs> it's the other way around. They're there to serve, not to dominate. 
Everything, and then he goes on beyond the leaders. He says, world, life, death, present, future. Everything we face in life is subject to Christ and ultimately to God the Father. It's all a big threat. Everything we face in life is in that summarized in, that, in those few words. The world, life, death, present, future. That's the, the existence we live in, and it's threatening. How do we live in this? And he says, guess what? Because guess who's in charge? Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead. He is Lord. Everything and in Christ, in some sense, because it all belongs to him, then in some sense, as we participate with him, it's all already ours. And you belong not to some human leader, not to some cultural tribe. You belong to Christ only and in him to God the Father. Cool or fool? In our culture of relentless self-promotion, we must not import our cultural tribalism into the church. Let's walk in humility and unity. And this is what this passage is about. Paul is saying, come to the cross. Be willing to be foolish in a clever world. Not to be consumed with taking selfies, but to be unselfish, to be those who are walking in humility. That's foolishness in the world's eyes, but it's wisdom to God. And, and when we do that, when we humble ourselves, guess what? We, be, we are going to be free from so much pressure that's put upon us to follow the ways of our culture. Jesus sets us free. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we rejoice <laughs> and, and that we don't have to go the way of the celebrity-focused culture around us this self culture of self-promotion, this culture of arrogance. Father, in Jesus' name, deliver us. Help us to humble ourselves, to walk in the grace of humility by the power of the Spirit. Lord, not to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're in something when we're not and not to think wrongly about others, but to think and have the right understanding about ourselves, about others, and ultimately about you and all reality. This is your world. And all things are yours. Our life, our death, our present, our future, the world itself, it's all yours, Lord. We're in your world, in your hand, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we rejoice in that today. Just say...
your own, take a moment to say your own prayer of response to God, just to tell him how you need to respond to him. Whether it's to confess pride, whether it's to, to just to, to ask him to, for something, just take a moment to, in your own heart, just to respond to God. Amen. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you, Pastor John, for that wonderful message. Before we sing our next song, let's take a moment to fill out our connection cards and reflect on what Dr. John has spoken to us about today. And as you fill out your connection card, we encourage you to let us know. Let us know what's going on in your life. Let us know how we can pray for you. And perhaps uh, you can think about some next steps that God has placed in your life today. Maybe it's to borrow a, an Australian term to take a spiritual selfie really evaluate how God is changing you and what follies in your life he's revealing to you. So yeah, let's take a moment to reflect on that.
of this world. God, we pray that you continue to change us from the inside out, that you reveal to us in our lives where we are walking in the wisdom of the world and where we can change and follow you with all our heart, with all our strength, with all our mind. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for paving the way providing the path by your grace we can have life everlasting and we pray in Jesus name
God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the
Yeah.